All right, so this morning, I want to share with you some weighty words from 2 Timothy. You can turn there. It's going to be a while before we actually get there, but you can turn there this morning. These words, these, these words are the last words of the Apostle Paul. And, and these words feel weightier to me as I grow older than they ever have before. <laughs> I feel the weightiness of these last words of the apostle in ways that um, both bear down on me and then also encourage me. And I pray that they will do both for you today. And, and I want us to look here today, to be honest with you, I want us to look here today because I just can't get what I started Wednesday night out of my heart or my mind. I had three pages of notes Wednesday night. I made it through one. Now, the weightiness of these words that we're going to read in Second Timothy are really twofold, and we need to understand that. First of all, these words, the weightiness of them, they're, they're given, these words are given as Paul's final instructions from God to all of Christ's servants throughout the ages. And secondly, they are the dying words of one of God's most faithful servants. And they're written to encourage and remind Timothy of his calling as a servant of Christ as well. And in that way, I think they apply to us. In this regard, I think that Second Timothy is applicable to all of the servants of Christ, not just those in eldership, those who are pastors, okay? Yes, it does specifically address pastoral duty and delight here, but there's more to it than that. It's applicable to all the servants of Christ throughout the ages, Saints, these words, understand this, these words were given by God through the Apostle Paul to Timothy and now to us. They're given to edify all of Christ's faithful servants forever until Christ returns. Second Timothy gives us a glimpse into how we are to carry out our faithful service to Christ while we are here on earth. There are great principles here to be learned from in this Short epistle. Before we actually get into the words of the epistle, I'm going to pick up where I left off Wednesday night just for a little bit here. And I want to further remind you about Paul's testimony, his personal testimony, his transformation. And and I want to give you that as a, a context out of which this letter is written so that you understand what's going on at this time in this man's testimony, in this man's life up to this very point, the very end of his life. Remember, Wednesday I told you that his testimony is unique in many ways. He was called to be an apostle. Yet in many other ways, it's no different than yours or mine as a Christian. The story of Paul's life is a story of redemption. It's a story of redemption, and it's a good reminder that no one is beyond God's saving grace, not even the chief of sinners. No one is beyond God's restoring power either. Because he can take one who is an enemy of the cross and make him a proclaimer of the cross. And we see that here in Paul's life. Consider his life for just a moment again. The life before Christ. I told you Wednesday that Paul's life before Christ was marked out by many things. It's marked out primarily by pharisaical zeal. And then it was marked out by violence. It was marked out by hatred. Hatred toward Christians and the faith that we believe And and it was all driven by this religious distortion of Judaism that was prominent at that time. And in his zeal for that faith, 
he, he was led down a path of really religious extremism. And we covered that Wednesday night a little bit. And this extremism led him, as I mentioned, to be present at Stephen's stoning and execution in Acts 7. Remember there, Saul, at the time he's called Saul, and he approved what they were doing at that time. And I mentioned it again last Wednesday that I think that Stephen's death was instrumental in Paul's conversion. I think it was instrumental because I I really believe he couldn't get away from the testimony of Stephen from that point forward. I think the testimony of Stephen echoed in his ears all the way until he came to the road on Damascus. And he came to that Damascus road and he met Jesus. And those words were still echoing in his ear at that time. But before that happened, before he met Christ on this road to Damascus, before that took place, we have to keep in mind who it is we are encountering when we read about Saul, who later became Paul. We must remember that he was a vicious man, a violent aggressor against the church. He was a violent persecutor of Jesus' bride. And Jesus equates that with persecuting himself. He was coming against Christ himself. In Acts 8.3, it says that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is not a man who is passive in his religion. No, he is zealous for his faith. And that faith was against the gospel. But something happened to change that man's life forever. When he met Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, something radical happened. Something glorious happened. His life was radically turned inside out. It was transformed. And we see the long-term evidence, as I mentioned Wednesday night, we see the long-term evidence of that transformation. We see it in history. You're part of the fruit of his faithful ministry. And we also see it in Scripture. That's what I want us to think about. The New Testament bears witness to God's transforming power, effectual power in Paul's life. We know from, from the point of meeting Jesus on to the very end of his life, his last breath, that Paul was dedicated. He was dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of God. And he did so even though it cost him greatly. Just think about what it cost the Apostle Paul. We've all probably read this in Acts and read through the New Testament and saw these testimonies of Paul. But let me remind you of what it cost Paul To proclaim the gospel faithfully to the end. During his ministry, once at least that we know of, he was stoned and left for dead, possibly even died. He was beaten with rods. He was whipped at least 195 times just for preaching the word of Christ. Saints, when you think about this testimony, here's what you need to keep in mind. The Apostle Paul literally bore the marks of Christ on his body. His back was like a gospel tract. You could actually trace his love for Jesus across his scars. Think about all that happened. He was shipwrecked for Christ. He was imprisoned for Christ. He was persecuted for Christ. He was impoverished for Christ's sake. To serve the church. To encourage the saints. To magnify his Savior for the rest of his life. Though he has went through all these horrific things. I mean, this is a life that's unlike any that you've ever seen, understood, and even grasped with your mind. We haven't seen anyone this faithful, this dedicated, this committed to give his entire life, knowing what it will cost him up front. Jesus told him that, his conversion. And what I find amazing in this is all the things that he went through, all the hardships he encountered and endured, 
What's truly amazing is this. In all that work and all that service, you know what you don't find in Paul's writings? You don't find complaints. You don't find any complaints about his hardships. You don't find complaints about the injustices that were served to him. You don't hear complaints about the pains that he's going through. No, the only thing you hear in Scripture are praises to God for being the one who called him into this glorious service of honoring Christ with the rest of his life. That should excite you because that's what he's done in you. And you should have this same mindset. We should have this mindset. And I I know that I don't. I find it far easier to complain about my struggles than to rejoice that God's called me to struggle on his behalf, to magnify him even through my suffering. There's a lesson in Paul's life for us in that as a true faithful servant of Christ. In, in Paul's words in the New Testament, you find absolutely no disappointment for having been crucified with Christ. There's just persistent amazement over the fact that God would have chosen him, the chief of sinners, to proclaim the richness of Christ. Saints, that is absolutely amazing. Never let that escape your heart. God chose you as a sinner to be his ambassador. Let that presently amaze you today as you think about your service for Christ in this world for the rest of your life. His testimony here, Paul's testimony of his life that we find in these last words even, I think are highly important, highly profitable for us. Here's why they're profitable for us. We have no idea what it's like to suffer like Paul did. Yet we complain. We need to have that sanctified. We need to have our complaining set apart. And we need to have praising put in its place. Paul's testimony of how he did this is absolutely astounding for us. And it just tells me this. Paul didn't do this in his own strength. We can't do it in our own strength. It was the work of Christ in him that did this, that cultivated this kind of joy in the midst of suffering. And when you understand that these words that we're reading here in 2 Timothy in a moment, these, these words, these last words of the Apostle Paul, they were written in the most wretched of places you could imagine, from a Roman dungeon. He's writing these words of praise to God And seeking to serve Timothy all the way to the end, even in the midst of this great, discouraging darkness. Even in the midst of this darkness, his life and his breath and his energy is all given to magnifying Christ and encouraging the saints. Here's what's happening here when you come to 2 Timothy. We find the aged Apostle Paul. He's in a dark, dank dungeon. He knows that his earthly labors are nearly over. They're coming to an end. So what's he do? Complain. What's he do? Bemoan his situation? No. He takes up a pen and he writes this precious and personal letter to Timothy, his child in the faith. And not only to Timothy, but to all of God's servants in the future. He writes this to us. And the very tone of this letter is One, it's important to us in that sense, because this is an intensely personal letter. And it's personal because it's Paul's last will and testament to all Christ's servants. This is Paul's swan song. He's soon to leave this world and be with Christ. And he is wanting to pass on what he has learned and what he has grown in to others so that they would magnify Christ and follow his example as he follows 
Christ himself. Here in 2 Timothy, here's what's going on. Paul is virtually cut off from all outside contact. And he's kept in a place that we now believe is called the Mamertine Prison in Rome. It was literally a pit, a dungeon. As I said, it was a dark, dank death chamber in reality. It was about half the size of a one-car garage, and at times it held up to 40 men together. And it was built underneath the city sewer system strategically. When it was full, too full, too much of an uh, overflow of people in it, I mean prisoners in it, that cell was then flooded by the sewage gates to drown them to make room for more. And it was from this dreaded cell with the overpowering smell of death and depression It's from this place, this dark, depressing prison designed for execution that we hear some of the most encouraging words ever penned by a man. These are the last words that Paul, the faithful servant that proclaimed the gospel to us, ever said. Soon after this, he's taken out of that prison by Roman soldiers, likely at night, to a place outside the city and was beheaded. And that sword was the key that set him free to be with his Savior that he served so faithfully. Man, I think about that and I think, I want that testimony to be mine, even if it means death for Christ's sake. I want to know that I have fought the good fight and I've finished well. I've went to the end of my life as faithful as the Apostle Paul. And I know that I can, by God's grace, the same way Paul did, because it's his spirit and his word that has work in us. And that's our hope as Christians. Don't set Paul over here as this pinnacle of the only one who could do this. No, we are all called into Christ's service, and following his example is part of it. As we go through this letter, it's obvious from the very beginning of it that there are hints of sadness in this letter. But above all these sad notes, you can hear a song of victory and gospel hope in 2 Timothy. And you hear that because these words remind us that God can take broken clay pots like Paul And make them into vessels of grace that can be used to magnify Christ and to edify others. No matter what our past was like. Not based on what our current circumstances are like. Those don't don't come into play here. God can transform all of this, our past and our current circumstances. Because God has chosen, as we see in Paul, to work through broken vessels so that God would have all the glory in our service. Saints, if we're faithful to the end, it's the faithfulness of Christ at work in us. And we are so thankful to be an instrument in his hands. I believe that his last words here, as I said, are given to all of Christ's servants throughout the ages. They're given to encourage us and equip us. So I want to give you four principles that I found here that flow out of the last words of the Apostle Paul that teach us how we should carry out our ministry as Christ's servants. And these, these four principles, I want you to get this. A lot of times we know that 2 Timothy is a pastoral letter, but these four principles apply to all of Christ's servants, not just the pastors. First off, in chapter 1, in chapter one, we learn that Paul's last words were full of tender correction. Tender correction. And we hear those words in verses 3 to 7. Look with me there. Here we're going to find Paul's correction coming like a loving father speaking to a dear son. And from that, this is what I want you to learn. You learn how you should express tender correction to others in the body of Christ. Look what it says. 
I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice. And now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. There's a lot happening in that little section. There's a lot of tender correction taking place in this section. Look what he does first. Paul first edifies Timothy personally before he corrects him directly. In verses 3 to 5, he points out some very particular things about Timothy. How much he loves him, first of all. How much he misses him. How thankful he is for him. He points out his own love for Timothy. He remembers his tears. He remembers his sincere faith, his true faith. Now, this is really important. Your tears. I long to see you. I remember your sincere faith. I, I see it working in you. This is very important. It's very personal, very tender words from this authoritative apostle. But then in verses 6 to 7, he moves into some correction. But it's tender correction, prefaced by this affection he had for Timothy. He says in 6 to 7, basically, Timothy, you need to keep God's gift of faith and service stoked up. You're letting people discourage you. You're letting people intimidate you. Stoke this gift up, brother. I see it in you. I was there when God called you. That's what he's going to say. And then in verses 8 to 9, Paul goes on to give him hope. Oh, by the way, you can do this, Timothy. God's spirit is going to empower you. So take heart, Timothy. Take heart. God didn't give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You see what he's doing there? Before he personally corrects him, he tenderly expresses to him how much he means to him, how faithful God has been at work in him. He's seen the evidence of God's grace in his life. And I think that Paul's words here should serve as an example for us on how to carry out our service as Christians in tender correction. He shows us here, I think, how to deal with weak and weary believers, those who need correction and edification. Those two go together, two sides of the same coin. Timothy was intimidated by the false teachers at Ephesus, and Paul knew that. But Paul's saying, brother, it's not your intellect, it's not your strength, it's the power of God at work in you that will accomplish the work there. Take heart. Preach the word. Watch it work. Go, Timothy. But we deal with people like Timothy all the time. Maybe we are Timothy ourselves. We're weak and we're weary. And it's good to know that God's given us some directions here. We all struggle with this. But let me just point out something that's really important here. It's easier to see the weaknesses in others than to see them in yourself, right? We all know that. Nobody walks out of here going, I didn't see any flaws in any of my brothers or sisters in Christ. No, we go out of here going, man, I can't believe that kid did that, and that guy did that, and that lady did that. Now, we see those. But let me tell you this. It's not helpful to point out the weaknesses in others if you're not willing to personally edify them as well. There's a place for correction, absolutely. 
when you see the flaws in others, but if you're not willing to come alongside them, to bear the burden with them, you're not actually doing anything but criticizing them. That must stop. You must be willing to correct, yes, but do it with tenderness, coming alongside the weak and the weary, just like Paul does Timothy here. Paul was evidently making it clear to Timothy, I'm here for you, brother, but I'm here to correct you and edify you at the same time. And I'm sure that that was the effect on Timothy's heart. I think it was the effect on Timothy's heart for this reason. He knew from whom this correction was coming. It was coming from a man who was loving him unto death, even to the last will and testament that he wrote. He dedicated this time to tell Timothy how much he means to him. And then correct him. Man, if you want to correct others in the church that way, praise the Lord for that. That's the way it should be done. Not just to rebuke them, not just to show them that they're wrong, but to come alongside them to help them walk through these struggles together with you. If you don't know how to do that, I think that Paul's words a little further in the text actually help us to understand how to do this. How to express tender correction wisely and effectually here. One thirteen. here's how we do it. This is the basis for it. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Faith and love are critical words to that verse. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Right? Now, basically what Paul is saying in one sense is this. If you want to tenderly correct someone, then take the sound doctrine that you have been learning, right? And then share it with those who are struggling, but do it tenderly, remembering in humility who you were when Christ saved you and what he's brought you through. Now, I know contextually that Paul is stating this verse as a pastoral mandate. I know that. But I think the nature of both the word that he speaks of and the way that it's passed on applies to every Christian. God's word properly used, cultivates soundness of soul. And the pattern for passing it on must be done like Paul does here, in faith and with love, the love of Christ. That, that's what conditions our correction of others. Paul wants Timothy to know that's what he's doing here. He's giving this correction in faith and love so that Timothy would be encouraged to continue on serving Christ faithfully to the end. So Paul speaks to him, in a lo- to him in a loving manner and in faith that God, through the sound words that he uses from Scripture, God will instruct Timothy's heart and encourage Timothy's soul to persevere to the end in faithfulness. And here's what we, we can learn from that. God will use us in his kingdom, in his church, as instruments of love if we learn to handle his word properly and lovingly. Those have to be balanced. To beat people down with the word is using the word incorrectly. It does tear down, but it's also able to build up. And you need to use it both ways. Tear down the false things, build up the truth in people. So we need to learn how to handle it properly and lovingly. Because the sound words of scripture are given for that reason. They're given as transformational, effectual, life-giving expressions of God's love. That's how we should handle them. So when we pass these words on properly in correction of others, then we then can become instruments of God's love in his hand. And then we magnify the grace and love of Jesus to them as his servants. 
That's our calling as Christians within the kingdom. Now, secondly, in chapter 2, there's another principle here. In chapter 2, we learn that Paul's last words were also full of personal motivation. Not like Joel Osteen motivation, okay? These are sound words here, not like Osteen's. Personal motivation is here. And we see those words in verses 1 to 10. Let me read that to you. Here's the personal motivation of the Apostle Paul here. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace, the favor that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word is not bound. The word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure Everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory, with eternal glory. Now, Paul's Paul's motive here in writing this to Timothy has maybe less to do with Timothy's needs and more to do with the kingdom's needs. His motive for this personal correction of Timothy is, is because the church needs to be protected. The church of Jesus Christ is going to suffer under false teachers. So it needs to be preserved from that. So he is coming alongside Timothy to motivate him to get after it. It's time to step up, boy. There's, there's an enemy afoot. They're among you. They've risen up among you. As I said in Acts, that would happen. They've shown up. Now, that's his motive. It's, it's not just personal correction here. It's personal correction in the direction of preservation, the preservation of the church. But if you don't understand it that way, you, you look at these words and they seem extremely hard because they're direct words. But here's what Paul knew. Paul knew Timothy's weakness. He, need, he knew he needed to be more disciplined and he knew he needed to set his mind on the big picture of why God called him into service. He needs to be disciplined for the battle. For the battle of purity, the battle of protection, this coming, he needs to guard the bride of Christ. Saints, when you, when you are motivated to help others in the church and serve them and stand fast with them in the hard times, that should be your motive. You should be motivated, motivated by the fact that you are helping to serve the bride of Jesus to protect one another in that glorious union that you have with Christ. Now, in verses 1 to 7, we see how Paul does this. He does this very directly, all right? Very directly in 1 to 7. Calls him a child. That's, that's encouragement there. Be strengthened. Tells him where his strength comes from by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And it reminds him that he, he has the content of this message he needs. And he has witness to it. And then in verse 3, he says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Set your minds on things above, Timothy. Not on your present circumstance, your weakness. He's saying, look, Timothy, in the next verse, 
Like an athlete's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And, and the hardworking farmer is the one who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think about what I'm saying, Timothy. Think about this. Here's what you need to do, Timothy. You need to get moving. You need to get busy. You need to get to serving and doing what God's called you to do in the kingdom. Care for his bride. Love his people. Get back to working the field that's around you and, and stop feeling sorry for yourself. I know that we probably have no one here that does that, right? No one ever looks around and thinks, man, being a Christian's hard and I just, you know, I, I don't want to do all the hard things. I don't want to, man, we've got prayer meeting. We have small groups, man. We have, you know, there's so much to do. I need to mow my lawn. It's just hard. I'm going through persecution, Lord. It's just difficult. No, you need to get to serving, working the field around you. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. You need to be willing to share in suffering for Christ's sake, like a good soldier, so that you can serve the bride of Christ. Saints, I want you to do something this morning. It's not in my notes. Look around at each other for just a minute. It makes it feel awkward, doesn't it? Guess what? You're going to look at these people forever. Forever. Don't you want to see them in glory one day, knowing that you faithfully served them here on earth? That's what I want. That falls short, but that's what I want. In verses 8 to 10, Paul goes on further, right? First, he tells him in 7 to think about what he's saying. Consider it. Ponder it. Let it roll around in your mind. Meditate on this. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Now he gives him a, a living illustration of what it means to work hard, be a faithful servant, compete according to the rules. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, meaning he died and then was raised on your behalf. The offspring of David, God the Son incarnate, the one he preached in his gospel, the one he is now suffering for, bound in chains like a criminal. But the word of God isn't bound, he says. He says, I endure all this for the sake of the elect. Here's what's going on. Paul's saying to Timothy in the way we would say it today, hey, Timothy, um, I hope by now in thinking through this that you can see that this hard work and this battle ahead of you, this is what Jesus did for you. Jesus has already encountered this on your behalf. It's what brought you into his kingdom, delivered you out of darkness into his glorious kingdom of light. And I hope that you see by now, Timothy, that I'm trying to follow Jesus' example, and that's why I'm charging you to follow mine. I'm simply trying to magnify Jesus in my service, and that's what we're all called to do as Christians. Now, in my... Uh, I would like to say sanctified imagination. I think about Timothy reading this for the first time, right? And he, he makes it through the first six verses, you know, reading through that. And he gets to verse seven. He's like, oh, great. <laughs> think over what he just said. This all sounds really bad. <laughs> it's not what I wanted to hear, Paul. I wanted to hear a pep talk, you know, about how easy it's going to be as a follower of Christ and a servant of his glory. But no, this isn't what you tell me. And he, he might have been thinking something like this. Paul, look, in verse, he gets to verse 6. Paul, Paul, look, you don't understand my situation. You don't know how hard it is. You don't know my personality, how, how timid I am. You don't really grasp my weakness. I'm not the same kind of preacher as you. You don't understand, Paul, the spiritual ground around me is hard. It feels like I'm in a battle all the time. But then, but then he paused in verse 7 and he began to think oh wait a minute who am i talking to i 
remember Paul's testimony. I remember his beatings for Christ's sake. I remember his stoning for Christ's sake. I remember how now, even now, he is in a dungeon awaiting execution all for Christ's sake and for the sake of the elect. And he's the one who's calling me to faithfully follow him. Oh, Paul, I fall short, but I want to follow you as you follow Christ. Paul, I see by, by your faithful example that I can do this. I can do these hard things that God's called me into as his servant. And I can do that because I see the power of Christ preserving grace and love at work in all your labors. And you, you told me just previous to this that you see that same work in me. You see the evidence of his powerful grace and love in me. So, Paul, I'm sorry for not considering this. Help me. Oh, Lord, teach me through Paul's example how to be a faithful servant. Church, I think that when you read Timothy, I think Paul's personal and powerful motivation here for him and for us will give you the, the hope that you have to carry on your faithful service God will give you, here's why, here's why it should help you. God will give you and I the grace and strength we need at the right time. It won't come early and it won't come late. It'll come exactly when God appoints it. But he'll never abandon us nor leave us, even in this dark world we live in. Now, Paul tells him all this and he says, look, I'm telling you this, not just for you, Timothy. I need you to understand your role, but I want you to understand the need around you. You're called to care for these brothers and sisters that belong to Jesus. So suck it up, play the man, go to work, because you've got people around you in need. Serve them, be Christ to them, faithfully give them sound words to encourage them and motivate them as I am doing to you. To me, that's important. And it's important that, like Timothy, we understand that Paul's testimony here, his love and, and the grace that God's shown him in, in his suffering, this, this, should, this should make us go, Lord, I haven't suffered anything. What, what's keeping me back? Why aren't you at work in me? Well, maybe you need to stop looking at me and start looking at God's grace in Christ. And you need to realize something in Paul's life and in yours. Here's what's happening. It is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's your hope. That's your hope in your calling as a Christian. That's what's going to move you and motivate you to do the hard things, to live in these last days, in times of darkness and despair, difficult days that are coming. This is what's going to call you and motivate you to sacrificially serve the church around you. To guard her purity. To go proclaim God's glorious grace of the gospel to the lost. This is what drives you to do the hard things in this world of darkness and despair. Listen, I am sick to death of the news. I've been alive 53 years. I've never seen good news on TV. Not in all those years. It's just dark and discouraging and dismal. And I think that's the enemy's ploy to make us keep our minds there. There's truth in this. There's a dark world. There's despair. There's all those things happening. But we have a God who reigns over all those things. And he reigns through his people. And his people are filled with his spirit to go into the darkness and proclaim the truth. And that's what Paul's telling Timothy. It's going to be hard, brother. You're going to suffer. But God is worth it. And the saints need it. Go, brother. 
Take up your cross and follow Christ. That leads us to the third chapter. Here, Paul's last words are now filled with realistic expectations for all of Christ's servants. Realistic expectations. Here, Paul gives us these expectations to prepare us for the battle that will come. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. But understand this, that in the last days, that would be from the time Christ ascended to now. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty, epochs, periods. Sometimes they fluctuate up and down, right? There will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with deceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. The Bible is a realistic book. Perilous seasons are coming. We are living in the last days. The Bible is very clear on that. And, and Paul's last words here are, are meant to awaken us to that, to awaken us to the spiritual battles that are around us presently. And, and then not just awaken us to that, but then unite us around the word of truth, around the power and importance of God's word in fighting these battles. We do not wage war with flesh and blood. We, we have the word of God and the truth of his inspired text that we bring to bear on the enemies of this world. Saints, this is important for us to grasp and grapple with. We need realistic expectations as pilgrims in this world so that we can persevere in the face of spiritual adversity, spiritual attacks. And we need to do it by faith in the sufficiency of God's word to conquer the sinner's heart. We're not fighting against homosexuals. We're fighting against sin. We're not fighting against abortion. We're fighting against sin in the hearts of minds of those who do not submit to Christ. That's what we're fighting. It's a spiritual warfare. We need to know where the battle lies. We can proclaim hope in the midst of it. That's what Paul's words here try to encourage Timothy to understand. They're given here really to give him confidence in the word of God. Look at 10 through 17. He says, this is what the world's like in the last days, one to five. But look, here's, here's where your confidence needs to lie. You, unlike those who do not love God, but love themselves, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters, literally wizards, deceivers, will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, meno, continue. It means abide and do not depart. Abide and do not depart. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. That's conviction. Knowing from whom you learned it, you've seen it personally at work in Paul's life. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings is affirmed to us, confirmed to us in Scripture. 
And those scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired, breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. His words here, like I said, are are given to boost our confidence in God's word to fight the battles that we encounter in this world. He says, look, dark days are coming, Timothy, but fear not. God's word will unite his people and it will protect you from the darkness. It'll shine a light in it. Saints, we we need this. We need to understand this. We need to understand that, that the word of God is, is what's going to get us through the dark days ahead of us. Because they're going to get darker. That's promised to us in the New Testament. All the epistles mention something like this. But when the times of difficulty and persecution and discouragement and heartache come, here's what we need to remember. The darkness, the darkness though it looks like it's growing greater and greater and greater, like it does today, here's our hope, here's our confidence. The light of Christ in his word and through his church will shine brighter in the midst of that darkness if we hold fast to it. When we, as Christ's servants, stand out from the world in our behavior, our transformed lives, and we hold out the word of truth as our hope, then the people in the darkness will begin to ask about the hope that lies within us. Because they're going to see that that hope in God's word is what is comforting us in the midst of this dark age. And also transforming us in the midst of this darkness, separating us from the sin around us, even as the world grows darker and more hopeless. That makes Paul's last words, final words in chapter 4, highly relevant to us. In chapter 4, Paul's words here are filled with biblical convictions. Biblical convictions. Before I read this, let me just say this. Our biblical convictions are really what make us as Christians stand out in the darkness. If you don't have biblical convictions, convictions about the power of the word, you will not stand out from the world. This is what will equip us to fulfill our ministry and do so with hope, by the way. And those convictions, we know, according to 316, they must be based on the scriptures. We believe these are the inspired words of God that are effectual, powerful. And that's what Paul believed. Paul taught that consistently. And so that's why he now charges Timothy in the presence of God to preach that. Preach the word, Timothy. That is what your conviction must be in the world of darkness around you and the battles you face in order to encourage the saints and evangelize the lost. Preach the word. Verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming, I'd say it's here, when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. That implies sober, period. Be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. The fulfillment of his ministry is the proclamation of the truth. That's what he's saying. We need to understand that. We need to have a conviction about that. Christ's servants must preach the word. It is sufficient to change the world because it changes individuals one soul at a time. 
We are to preach the word, not politics, not moralisms, not our pet opinions. We are to clear, clearly proclaim the word of God, the gospel of God. We need to give a clear declaration of that because that alone can transform the hearts of sinners. Because God's word has within itself the dunamis of God, the inherent power of God, the good news. And that good news alone will change the hearts and the actions of individuals. And it will do so from the inside out, not conforming them on the outside to look like they're in. So we need to grasp that. We need to have a conviction of that. We need to understand this. Moral laws won't do this. It can't change the inner man. Better laws can't do this. Even God's law was not given for that purpose. It doesn't have the power to do that. It can condemn, it can point out sin, but it can't bring us faith and hope and grace. But when the law is used lawfully to lead people to Christ, oh, it's transformational. The world will be transformed one soul at a time when we have a conviction to do it that way. Proclaim the word. The word must be used as God intended. And he makes it clear here it is to be the tool we use to reprove and rebuke and exhort and do it with patience and conviction. But remember, do it, doing it with tender conviction, tender correction. Now, we won't do that if we don't have a deep, deep abiding conviction that this word can change the souls of sinners, all types. We have to have a conviction that the word of truth, the gospel, was given for that reason. It was given to rescue the worst of sinners and sanctify the weakest of saints. That's why we must proclaim it faithfully. It is sufficient for all that God intends in redeeming man and sanctifying Christians. But it takes a deep biblical conviction to rest in that truth. And then to do what Paul's telling Timothy to do. To stand out in a culture that hates the God of truth. But Paul's testimony tells us that can be done. In Paul's own testimony, he is resting in and proclaiming the gospel truth faithfully, though it cost him dearly physically. He tells us all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But even so, Paul's final words remind us of how important it is to be faithful to the end, even if it costs us everything. Listen, that's what it costs Jesus to bring God's gospel to us. It cost him his life, his righteous, sinless glorious life on our behalf it cost him everything to bring us life and the truth of the gospel the apostle paul understood that he didn't count his life as precious to himself he counted the cost of following christ and he considered that serving jesus unto death was well worth all the suffering that this world could throw at him because he understood this though the price for following god's word honoring christ serving the church that price might be great but the final reward was greater. The final reward was greater because that's what he tells us in the very last few verses here in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. I have fought the good fight. So it's a good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith, guarded it, held fast. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, those final words, that final reward that he is rejoicing in, in the midst of all his suffering, he's saying, oh, that's mine by grace through faith in Christ and his word. But it's yours if you love the Savior who is coming again to reward his children. It's yours. 
What you need to understand about this testimony of Paul in 2 Timothy is these last words, these final words here, even in chapter 4, these are words of final victory for the Apostle Paul and for all Christians. And I pray that as you seek to apply God's word and the word of 2 Timothy as servants of Christ, I pray that these words that Paul declares to us here in 7 and 8, I pray that those words will be on your lips at the very end of your life as you close your eyes, anticipating opening them in Christ's presence. Receive your reward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is both a comfort and a corrective to us. And Lord, you've given it to us in the most tender fashion possible. You sent your son to bring it to us personally, to show us your love incarnate, and to display our need of your grace through the Old Testament into the New Testament, and then show us the answer to our sin and our struggle with it by sending Christ to be our substitute. We thank you for the glorious, redeeming love of Christ. We pray that we would stand firm in the faith. We would suffer. We would endure. We would work all for his glory and the good of his people. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.